Background Jonah and Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 was presented by Jack Crabtree on August 6, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute Reunion to Knock and the Gospel of Matthew The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc. 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. Okay, we'll start with background on Jonah. As you know, just to remind you to situate Jonah here, you have the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. The kingdom splits after Solomon into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Jonah is a prophet prophesying to Israel, the Northern Kingdom, very early in that process. He may be one of the earliest prophets after David. Second Kings 14.25 identifies him with King Jeroboam II, the first king, I have the first king of the northern kingdom, is that right? Not sure where I got that. But he may be a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, or as Earl has suggested to me, actually the text doesn't require that he be contemporary with them, it's just that his prophecies are mentioned as influencing the king at that time. So he may actually be earlier. That's a half century before the Assyrians crushed Israel. So he's being asked to go to Nineveh, a major city in Assyria, to pronounce judgment against them a whole half a century before they're even a player in the life of Israel. So here are the questions that I have when I come to Jonah. One is a big one. It's not necessarily relevant to our point, although it might be relevant to our point. That's part of the question. Is this account the account of an actual historical event, or is this some kind of didactic fictional account that has been created? Is it a literary creation that has didactic purposes, or is it an actual historical event? I'm not questioning whether Jonah was really a prophet. I think that's clear from Second Kings. But what about this account? Did this actually happen? I just remember years ago reading C.S. Lewis, and he argues that it's not historical but fictional, and his argument is he knows this, he's read stories all of his life. He knows a story when he sees one. <laughs> well, okay. Is that convincing? Before we blow it off completely, we have to acknowledge, don't we, this doesn't read like the other historical accounts in the Tanakh. So... It has a quality that the others don't have. What do we make of that? What's the significance of that? Did Jonah actually die, being actually resurrected after three days? Is that how we should read the account? Or was Jonah miraculously preserved alive in the innards of the big fish? Not sure what significance that may or may not have, but that's a question we could ask of the Jonah account. And then more importantly, did the Ninevites know that Jonah was still alive, is the account written in such a way that we are to expect that the fact that this miracle had happened to Jonah was at all instrumental in them repenting? See what I'm asking? Or were they completely oblivious to that? And what they're responding to 
is nothing more and nothing less than the proclamation itself. You're going to be judged in 40 days, and he doesn't even call them to repentance, as I remember. He just says, you're going to be judged. And then they did repent. So was their repentance linked to the miracle or not? And then, of course, a huge issue is what's the fundamental message of the book of Jonah that could potentially be critical to how Matthew's looking at it. Okay, Matthew's a more complex context. So as background, let me give you the sequence of events in the immediate historical context in which Jesus says this. Jesus had cast out an unclean spirit. The Pharisees, well, the crowd goes, this can't be the son of David, can it? And the Pharisees responding to the potentially positive response of the crowd, they go, oh, no, 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 no. Let, let's get this straight. It's by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That must be how he's able to command a demon. It can't be that he's the son of man. Jesus argues, basically, that that's really not a very intelligent and viable interpretation of what you just saw. Frankly, it's a little bit implausible what you have suggested. It's by Beelzebul that I cast out demons. And so what do the Pharisees do when their rationalization has been undermined by Jesus? Well, then why don't you show us a sign? So they don't repent. They don't go, oh, yeah, well, then the crowd's right. You must be the son of David. They wax resistant. Well, what I need to do is see a sign first before I'm going to do that. And then we have our text where Jesus says he's not going to give them a sign except the sign of Jonah. So that's the context. And then immediately, Jesus goes on to set the Pharisees' unbelief in contrast to the openness and receptivity of the men of Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah and the queen of Sheba in the account of her coming to visit Solomon. And then finally, after that, Jesus tells an allegory, an allegorical fable, it seems to me, to explain what has just transpired. He tells an allegorical fable that sort of explains the psychology of hardness of heart, resistance to belief, and how if you refuse to believe, you will not believe. If you refuse to believe, you harden yourself against the truth. That's that bizarre thing about an unclean spirit going out of a man wandering through waterless places. When he comes back, he finds the place swept, put in order, and he goes out and finds seven more unclean spirits, more wicked than itself, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. So he's explaining, I think in that fable, that's what I've just seen happening in you Pharisees. The last state is worse than the first. Another sign's not going to help you because you've already seen the sign and you hardened yourself against it. Okay, questions about Matthew? What does Jesus mean by his charge in this context that an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign? Is he implying there that wanting a sign is in and of itself evil? Or is he saying something else by that? Why does Jesus say that no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet? Why is he refusing to give him another sign? How does Jesus know that he will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Is his knowledge derived from his understanding of the book of Jonah? Is he deriving that from some sense in which Jonah is a prediction? Is that the way we are to understand it or some other way? To whom is the sign of Jonah a sign? Ignore my text, my bad grammar. 
to whom is the sign a sign? Was the sign of Jonah a sign to the men of Nineveh? Or is the reference to the sign of Jonah, is Jesus referring to a sign that he's going to give to his contemporaries? In other words, was Jonah a sign? And that he's saying the sign that Jonah gave to Nineveh, that's the sign that's going to be given to you in some sense? Or is Jesus actually exploiting the text of Jonah rather than interpreting the text of Jonah? Is he just taking the fact that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale? He knows he's going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And so he exploits the commonality of those to create a name for a sign that he's going to give to his generation. So which is it, or is it both? Is Luke 11, 29, 32 significant in that regard? Did I skip that? I skipped that. My point, 2.1.4. Note the parallel passage in Luke. Luke reads, there it says, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So how are we to think about that? So if it's the former, if Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, how can a sign given to the men of Nineveh be given to the men of Jesus' time? In what sense does that make any sense? Is the sign of Jonah more significant and important than other signs that Jesus could point to as evidence of his messiahship? He's been giving signs throughout his ministry, performing miracles that are credentialing his messiahship. Is this one somehow more important, or is this just one more of them? And then what about Jesus' citation of Jonah? Does that answer our question about the historical, the historicity of the account of Jonah? Does it imply that Jesus thought it was a historical account? Okay. Then I'd list some logically possible relationships between Matthew and Jonah. I have tended to be dismissive of prediction and event predicted on the grounds that there is no prediction in Jonah, at least no predictions that weren't are also fulfilled in the book of Jonah. So it doesn't seem to be a prediction or something related to a prediction. So what is the relationship between what Jesus is saying, and what Jonah is all about. Now, I may be too quick in that assessment because there are traditions of interpretation of the Bible that take non-predictive material in the Old Testament, call them a type, and by that they mean there is this anticipation of something in the future, in the life and ministry of Jesus, And this was anticipating that. And oftentimes those interpreters imply, I think, that this anticipation should function much like a prediction. You ought to have been able to infer the event that was going to happen in the life of Jesus from the clue, the hint, that God planted in the actual history in the Old Testament itself. So is that what's going on with Jonah? Do we have that kind of relationship? Any questions? Remind me of the difference between allegory and story or metaphor. Can you help with those definitions? Okay. In my judgment, most of Jesus' parables are analogies. And an analogy is where you describe something that's known to you, something that you understand the nature and the dynamic of it, and you say this other thing that you don't know the nature and the dynamic of, it's kind of it's like that. And so there are parallels and there are analogies between them. An allegory is very different. It uses analogy that's true, but it's dependent upon symbolism. 
And typically an allegory will not even make sense at the surface level. An analogy will always make sense at the surface level. That's what you're counting on. You know when I describe to you a farmer sowing in the field or the relationship between a steward and, his, and the landowner or whatever, the Good Samaritan. Yeah, I'm describing something that you can completely relate to because you understand the surface level of that. An allegory, you won't be able to understand the surface level of it. Pilgrim's Progress, the pond of despondency or whatever it is, it's not the pond that helps you understand. It's the name that he gives it that tells you what we're talking about. It becomes a symbol of a psychological, emotional condition, right? If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress, that's an allegory. And it's been a long time, but I just remember it starts with rocking chair that sprouts wings and flies off. Well, I've never seen that. I can't relate to the dynamic of that. That's not an analogy, It's an allegory. It's the symbolism of wings, the symbolism of flying off, the symbolism of a rocking chair that he's relying upon. And then what connects the reality and the surface level is what he wants to say over here. However, those symbolic values, what they reflect would be related in truth. That's how he's going to relate them here. And almost never will that make any sense at the surface level. So that's an allegory. Is that? Is, would Narnia also be an allegory? The lion? I'd have to think about that. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think it's an allegory. That's why it seems clear to me that the story that he tells is an allegory. It makes no sense. Why does an unclean spirit worry about whether it's a waterless place or not? It's not even a material being, right? I assume. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they are. So, and when it comes back, it's swept and put in order. Unclean spirits are anal retentive? (laughs) What's with that? And so it seems to me that these are clearly symbols being strung together to make his point. Hey, Jack, if you don't mind, I just mentioned that the next pair of things that we're looking at, Jesus tells a parable, and that distinction about allegory and analogy, I think will be relevant in that as well, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit in my comments this afternoon. Great. Okay.